series Flip the Script about the lies that we can believe that can impact how we actually live our lives. And, and last week it was uh, flipping the script on the lie that you should just give up. Well, I got to tell you, this week, you know, we all have, but this week, the enemy handed me a really sucky script, right? One that hit me on Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and one thing after another calling up on me. Now, come Thursday, I feel like not doing really good. I believe Facebook, not the side book. And, and so I get real on Facebook and say, I'm overwhelmed when I have a, a lot of sucky stuff is just falling on top of me. And so I had brothers and sisters from all over praying for me, sent me inboxes and stuff like that. And, and uh, yesterday morning, you know, uh, it was really a good morning. About 6.30, I really turned to God, you know, in the midst of this. And, and he just, he just poured out some stuff, you know. And, and I wrote in my, I wrote in my journal, you know, the words, Lord, I look to you. I'm like, yo, 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 that's a song. You know, by no song. You know, Lord, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. Lord, give me vision to see things like you do. Lord, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. Because you know just what to do. And it was just an amazing time of God where he just poured into me his truth. And, 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 and I felt the darkness begin to, to lift. And, and then this morning I was like, and, and see, I'm weird and I admit it. I can blame it for being a submarine sleeping close to a nuclear reactor. Um, but like I woke up this morning and a lot of you know I get hats and I write Things, Bible verses in my hats. This one, actually, my, my dog found this one, so it's in my room with the head, so I can't really uh, use it. But anyhow, I, I, I put it on with these truths around, right? And here's what's in my Brazil hat. Uh, I wrote on July 22nd, the Lord is my shepherd. I wrote on July 9th, trust the Lord and rely on your God, Isaiah 50. Isaiah 53, July 15th, believe his message. July 23rd, Psalm 46, cease striving and know that I am God. And then I wrote it on my hat on July 30th of this year. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. On that very same day, reading about uh, Elijah and his moment in the cave, I felt God say, get up, go back, your calling is renewed. And then I wrote, I have what it takes make a difference. I can't handle this on my own. I got some help from my elders to pray for me. I really can change. And I will never just give up. And, and then this morning, it was like, seriously, God, you're like, ridiculous. Because I wrote all that this morning. Psalm 63. And I, we're supposed to read that on Monday, but I missed it. Oh God, you are my God. I don't see search for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. And I wrote, Amen. Are you kidding me? Crazy. This was a psalm that I picked out over a month ago. There's no real lasting water here, God. Just dry and weary emptiness. I want your living water. And I read, David writes, I've seen you. And I wrote, God, I've seen you. Not, not with my physical eyes, but I've I, I seen you, God, with the eyes of my heart and my soul. And then he writes, in your sanctuary, and I gazed upon your power and glory. And I said, God, you're, you're so glorious, God. You're, you're so powerful. And then he writes, your unfailing love. And, and I wrote, Lord, I fail you so much. 
says, your unfailing love is better than life. And I said, Lord, I'm feeling you. From yesterday morning when I turned to you, really turned, you have not stopped pouring your love and truth onto me. <laughs> through your word, through reminders, through the silly hat, through songs that you brought to me, God, I look to you, running in circles, let it happen. The psalmist writes, you I praise you. And I really do. I am right now. Psalmist writes, you satisfy me more than the richest feast, more than anything or anyone. I will praise you in songs of joy. God, I'm not just mouthing words, but I'm expressing my heart, celebrating your invasion into my very soul, pushing back the darkness. Because you are my helper right now, because you are my helper, and I wrote, amazingly cool and awesome it is, that reality. I sing for joy. I sing for joy, and I sing because of joy. In the shadow of your wings, what a safe place to be, God. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. And I write, Lord, there is no better place to cling to, no better place that I would rather You just had to get real for me. Let you know where I've been. And that script was heavy, but God's truth flipped. In the beginning, God, the one who was and is, is the come, created everything. And I mean everything. Galaxies, billions of them, stars, trillions. He created the planets and he filled this world with breathtaking beauty and wonder, sunrises and sunsets and mountains and rivers and streams and forests and, and starry skies and changing leaves. I mean, what an incredible, beautiful world God created. Having the opportunity to walk my crazy puppy around the lake nearby where I live, and it's just beautiful in the morning. And when it's cold out and you see the mist rising above the lake, you see the colors and you see the sun beating back the darkness. And I have headphones on and I look around and make sure it's safe to sing and be, you know, whatever I'm going to do. And, 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 and uh, I did that this week. You know, and it's kind of cool thing. I'm walking, the trees are kind of covering the sun. And I'm listening to that song, Do It Again. You know, and as I'm like, I know the, I know the night won't last. Your world, your work will come to pass. And just as I was singing that, I walked, and guess what hit me? The sun. I thought, God, you're just amazing. What a world you created. I mean, not only did God fill this world with beauty, but he filled it with life. I mean, life is everywhere, right? Birds, insects, you know, people, animals. Right? I mean, if you were to dig into the ground and take a, a, the dirt and put that under a microscope, it'd be teeming with life. And on day six, God created man and woman, the crowd of his creation. The very reason why everything existence in the first place. You see, this world is just creation. All of it is just God's nursery, right? You know, you know God was nesting before we came here, and he created this world just for us. We are the reason. I'm the reason for the sunsets. I'm the reason for the sunrises. I'm the reason for snow-covered mountains. And God created man and woman in his own image and likeness, and he placed them in this garden where they had an up-close and personal relationship with him. And as crazy as it seems, capital G God would take walks with them in the cold of the morning. That would be awesome. I mean, imagine what it must have been like to actually live in a world that was untainted by sin, decay, and corruption. And imagine experiencing that kind of intimacy with God. No distance. No barriers, no masks, no hiding. They were good. They were very good, but not for very long. Understand, even before Adam and Eve made it out 
And because of that choice, because of their sin, <laughs> they were banished from the garden. That perfect place that they were banished from that garden of intimacy with God and hiding from God began. Immediately, death and separation invaded God's perfect world. Paul writes in Romans 5, 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. But listen, that's only part of the story. You see, but long before that, that first couple took that bite out of the forbidden fruit, God already had a plan. He already had a plan to set things right. He already had a plan to, to, to remove the distance. He already had a plan to give death, sin in the grave, one once and for all, timely, crushing, lethal, and defeating blow. You see, even before they fell, even before you fell, God had a plan. To unleash his amazing grace. Paul continues in the very next verse. There's a great difference. Say great difference. <laughs> There's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through the other man, Jesus Christ. Even greater is what? Even greater is grace. Now understand, grace is greater than your guilt, it's greater than your mistakes, it's greater than your shame, it's greater than your failures, it's greater than your circumstances, it's greater than your doubts, it's greater than your fears. Grace is greater than anything. Anybody need that greater than grace this morning? Continue. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For out of sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we're guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live and triumph over sin and death with this one man, Jesus. You see, where once sin and death reign, now, for many of us, what reigns in our life is not sin and death. What reigns and rules in our life is a wonderful amazing grace of God. Amen? <laughs> yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation to everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Are you kidding me? If this is really true, this is like good news of great joy for all people. As I've said many times before, since the dawn of creation, the overriding theme of human history, human history, all of it, I don't care what they say in schools or Discovery Channel, the overriding theme of human history has been God's passionate pursuit of a prodigal people. It's been the story of a loving God, and a just God, doing whatever it takes. I mean, whatever it takes. ensuring that his passive pursuit of a prodigal people would reach its end game, it, it, it was a three-phase plan. Phase one was the nation of Israel. <laughs> I'm saying for Abraham, God built a nation that would begin to show the world what God was like. A nation that was to be different, was to live different than the world around them. And for 2,000 years, God prepares and he, and he shakes this nation for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. By giving them his law, you know, his words and commands, decrees on how to live. By building this temple, a place where a sinful people could begin to grow 
approach a holy God by introducing a sacrificial system and by teaching them about holiness, about sin, and about how obedience to God leads to blessing and how disobedience and chasing after and turning to things other than God leads to some pretty rough and tragic consequences. Yet for 2,000 years, God tries to shape this nation. And believe me when I tell you, it, it, it was not an easy job. I mean, nothing seemed to work for God's people. I mean, God gave them the law, but, but they couldn't keep it. God gave them the temple, but they, they, they forgot whose temple it was. And they either ignored it, treated it with contempt, or they acted like the temple actually belonged to them. He gave them kings, and they became proud and disobedient. And they did not shepherd God's people well. He gave them prophets who speak words of encouragement to call people back home to God. And People didn't listen to prophets, and sometimes they beat the prophets, and sometimes they kill the prophets. Now, I'm saying, as you look at this phase of God's plan, there doesn't seem any hope for these people. Listen, the truth is, whenever you spend time in this phase, in this part of the Bible, eventually, in the Old Testament, it just kind of wears you out, right? It's pretty dark and ugly. And you know what? That's exactly the point. You see, the Old Testament covenant. We just get tired of it because it, it doesn't work. In a way, that's his intention. Because all of it was designed to point to Jesus, who is our only hope and our only path to salvation, which brings us to face to God's plan to make things right. Jesus, the Christ. Christ I was kidding, I thought Christ was his last name. I was thinking Jesus Christ. Hey, Mr. Christ, get out of here. That's his title. We decide. All right. He lived a Jesus lived a sinless life, and he died a sinner's death. He died a substitutionary death, which means he died in our place. Understand the sorrow, the pain, the, the, the betrayal, the, the beatings, the punishment that he bore. That, that was mine. That was yours. Yet, church, we must never forget. This is in your notes. That God poured out his sin-hating wrath on Jesus. So that he could pour out his soul-loving grace on us. Let that sink in. See, God's passing pursuit of this prodigal people. He finally reached up, caught up his people in all its fullness at the cross. Which brings us to phase three, the final phase, our phase of church. Jesus followers, his body, his bride, his kingdom, the unstoppable force, the seemingly filled the hope of the world. We're the church. We're phase three in God's redemptive plan. Get it? Good. Now we're kicking off a series this week, just two weeker called Vision, why we're here. And never underestimate the power of vision. For example, in 1774, a leader named John Adams boldly declared the vision of a new nation that a union of 13 states independent for the parliament and the king of England. And against great odds, those words came true within two years of this prophetic proclamation in the United States of America was born. In 1789, William Wilberforce. I think we have a picture. I love this quote right here. You can choose to look the other way, but you cannot say again that you do not know. Wow. Is there anything that you I've looked away from it. You know you should do something. But William Wilberforce stood before the British Parliament and cried out for the day when men, women, and children would not be sold and bought like farm animals. 
Tyler's campaign against slavery. He didn't give up. And finally, in 1833, 1833, four days before his death, Parliament passed a law and ended slavery. In the late 1800s, two brothers, Wilbur and Wilbur Wright, announced the age of the flying machine had arrived. Ten years of disappointing experiments followed. But on December 17, 1903, the Wright brothers made history when their small biplane lifted off the sandy beach in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in the age of air travel was born. The early 20th century dynamic industrialist by the name of Henry Ford, he has a cool quote here too. If I had asked the people what they wanted, they would have said what? Faster horses, right? But they don't really know what they want. I gotta get them what they really need. He stood in front of his ragtag employees and vowed to make automobile transportation affordable for the average American family. The nation laughed out loud, but barely 15 years later, millions of poor model T's were bought and sold for around $290 each. Probably worth a little bit more right now. In South Africa in the 1960s, Nelson Mandela, another cool quote. Man, I like this one. Don't you? May your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears. Probably a preacher now, okay? Mandela dreamed the day when the apartheid that had oppressed the black people of South Africa for so long would end. And one day Mandela stood before his captors and he told them that, you know, you need to stop this or it's going to get really difficult for you. And, and here's what he said. I love it. Ending apartheid is a cause for which I will gladly invest every day for the rest of my life and a purpose for which I am fully prepared to die. Thirty years later, this vision after 30 years in prison, this vision was realized as apartheid ended and became the president of South Africa. Who can forget 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. and painting a picture of a world without prejudice and hatred. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Although Dr. King was assassinated, his dream was on. And 50 years later, his passion still guides the nation. I just said, man, I wish he was here today. You know? We need a man like that. We need a man with that kind of vision. The Apostle Paul, and here's a, this thing, I don't know what it really looked like. This is a statue outside the Vatican. Uh, sculpted in 1838. Now Paul had a vision given to him directly by God. A vision to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the entire world. Paul spent years doing just that, taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, during three missionary journeys. He, he traveled a thousand miles, mostly by foot, sometimes by ship. And when he was on a ship, the weather started getting rough, and his tiny ship was tossed. It's not for the courage of the fearless crew. <laughs> the weather started getting rough, his tiny ship was tossed. He had three shipwrecks. I think he'd rather walk. I'm walking, I'm walking, and I'm taking another ship again. I'm Paul endured great opposition and persecution. Paul literally gave his life for the answer. Acts 20, there's this powerful scene. Paul's about to go to Jerusalem, and his brothers know that, hey, it's going to be ugly when you go there. Here's what Paul says. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and
we love you, we need you. If you go, we're going to kill you. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I right now need to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a cause for which I will gladly invest every day for the rest of my life, and a cause for which I am fully prepared to die. But what does these men have in common? They had a dream, they had a vision that gripped them and moved them. Others were pulled forward with them in their wake. I, I've always loved the definition Bill Hybel gave of vision. Vision is a picture of the future that produces passion. From forward, it was a picture of a future where a Model T was parked in the driveway of every butcher, baker, and candle stick maker. For John Adams, it was a picture of a future where America was free, independent, one nation under God. For Dr. King, it was a picture of a future where two children, one black and one white, would sit on opposite ends of the seesaw and be totally oblivious to the color of each other's skin. For the Apostle Paul, it was a picture of countless men and, and women from all across the world finding freedom, salvation, and new life in the person of Jesus Christ. Like I said today, I, I'm going to talk about vision, about why we're here. About what God has called us to do, who He's called us to be. And it's really important to talk about this every now and then because there, there's something about vision, right? That happens like, just like this cup, right? Another cup over here. And there's something about vision, right? That, that over time, it just leaks, right? It, some things just kind of poke holes in this vision. And life and distractions and busyness and problems and circumstances and routine and lesser things begin to poke holes in us and the vision leaks out from us to the point where we forget who we are. We forget, we forget why we're here. We forget why Jesus left us here on this planet after he saved us rather than taking us home. Understand vision is what gives significance to the otherwise meaningless details of our lives. You see, it's not always about what we're doing, but rather why we're doing it. I mean, you can take the minute details of this very day and drop them into a boiling pot of God-ordained vision and begin stirring it around. Before you know it, there's purpose, meaning, adrenaline, significance, and power. I mean, it's the difference between filling bags of dirt for no reason and filling bags with dirt to build a day to save a town from a raging flood. There's nothing glamorous or fulfilling about filling bags of dirt. But saving a, a city, that's another thing altogether, right? I mean, building a dike is meaning to the chore of filling bags of dirt. It's the same with vision. The vision in his church. You see, when vision leaks out from us, the routines of life and ministry to the Lord can begin to feel like, you know what, all, all we're doing, I'm just shoveling dirt, right? I'm just shoveling dirt. That's all I'm doing. I'm just showing her. I'm just teaching some kids and children ministry. I'm just, I'm just holding an umbrella in the parking lot. I'm just, I'm just filling up communion cups. I'm just working a soundboard. I'm just filling bags with dirt. But listen, if you take those same routines, filling communion cups, passing out a program, and you view them through the lens of vision, everything looks different. Everything feels different. You see, vision brings your world into focus. It brings order. The chaos, it, 
enables you to see everything differently, to approach everything differently. Vision, basically, it weaves four things into our life. Andy Stanley talks about that in his book called Visionary. Vision weaves passion into our life. Creates emotion. See, it actually allows you to experience ahead of time devotions that are part of your anticipated future. Anybody watching the World Series? Like, there's a lot of passion there, right? And they hit a home run. The Astros lost. They hit a home run that one inning. Like, hey, we're up one to nothing. We're going to win this thing, right? And you're already picturing the future and celebrating that future. The game wasn't even over yet. It also means motivation, right? I mean, dike builders to save the city are some motivated bunch, right? I mean, they're willing to work through the night. Vision also brings direction into our lives. Did you use some? Like, some, there's so many things. So many roads. Which one do we choose? Well, vision serves as a roadmap. It, it, it informs our decisions. See, anything that moves us towards fulfilling our vision gets your green light. Everything else, we approach with caution. Vision will prioritize your values. It'll bring the importance up to the surface. In terms of your life, your schedule, it'll weed out whatever is in the way of what matters most. Sometimes it's in the way. Jesus is not really careful things. You know, if I could just give up being a serial killer, I'd be a great Jesus follower, right? It's good things, right? It's good things. They're not bad things. They get in the way of the, see, of the best things, right? Good is the enemy oftentimes of best things. At least purpose into your life. It gives us a reason, right? Hey, there's a reason I'm filling these communion cups. There's a reason I'm back there with these kids right now. There's a, there's a reason I'm in a kangaroo suit, right? There's a, there's a reason why we do these things. And our vision, while we're here, is basically about connecting people to a life-changing relationship to Jesus. Right? Connecting people to a life-changing relationship to Jesus. And, and the heartbeat, and this week as I thought about this, there's two words I think are the heartbeat. That vision. Two words that were central to the gospel then and central to the gospel now, central to the mission of Jesus. The two words are rescue and restore. See, our, our vision is about rescuing people from their sins. And you know what? In recent weeks, we have seen some powerful, right, images of rescue. Here, here's some I grabbed from the internet this week. Hurricane Harvey, right? Dramatic. Rescue. Jump in there and help out. Rescue, right? But they don't care. Hey, what church do you go to? What team do you root for? You're Democrat or Republican? None of that matters, right? What color your skin? No, it doesn't matter, right? Another picture of rescue. Here's another picture of rescue, right? And most of the rescuers are just ordinary people, right? Everyday people who's, who knew, hey, what? People need help. Let's just go do it, right? And this is a popular that picture right there. Right? Pretty insane stuff. You see, when Jesus invaded our planet, he was on a rescue mission. People needed help. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and they went pleasing and shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And that is good news, right? And the next verse is the reason why it is good news. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because they not believe in the name of God's one and only Son. So whoever believes in him is will not perish, but has eternal life, and whoever does not believe in him stands condemned. You see, Jesus did not 
to the world to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. Listen, so many people in our world, whether they realize it, acknowledge it or not, stand condemned. The flood waters are rising. Paul talks about in one of my least fun verses in the entire Bible about the need people need a rescue. Our Lord Jesus will punish anyone who doesn't know God and won't obey his message. The punishment will be eternal destruction. They'll take that far from the presence of the Lord and his glory and strength. But that's the can. Do you see the breaking news that is flashing across the screen of our heart and life? There's floods. There's disaster, right? There are people who stand condemned, who don't know God, who don't obey his message, and are facing eternal punishment. They are in desperate need of life change. They are in desperate need of connecting to Jesus in a life-rescuing relationship. Get it? Get it? Get it? Saving you from your sins. As awesome and necessary needed as that is. 
You see, he wants to restore his image in you. Yeah, restore means to bring back to its original and intended condition. And this week, I, I just found some pictures of things that were restored, right? Okay, okay. Look at that. Oh, that's nice. Look at that chair. Ah, yeah. It's restored. It, it, it looks so much better. Check out this house, right? It was restored. Right? Check out this car. Oh, yeah. Isn't that beautiful? When you see things restored. And Jesus came to restore. In Genesis 1.27, right, it says that God created man in his own image. It was God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And that's chapter 1, and it's awesome. But we already said that does not last very long. In Genesis chapter 3, that image gets messed up, it gets tainted, it gets distorted. Just like that furniture, right, or that part of the house, it's like, man, that's, that, that wasn't the intention of that chair, or that house, or that car, for it to look like that. See, Jesus was, didn't come just on a rescue mission. He came on a restoration mission. Read in Romans 5, 18, read earlier. Christ's one act of righteousness brings a relationship, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. You see? Rescue and what? Restoration. Jesus said in John 10, that the thief comes to still kill the destroy. After all, they may have life and all its what? Forms. Romans 8, 29, for God knew his people advanced, and he chose them to be conformed to the image of the Son, so that his Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. So all of us who had that veil removed, and it's removed when we, when we believe in Jesus and have been rescued, Right? So all of us who had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as He changed, as we are changed into His glorious image. Restoration, right? You, you see, Jesus wants to restore His image in you, and in me, and in everyone who surrenders to His rescue. See, he, he wants your image, he, 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 he wants your life to look just like Jesus, right? That's it. You want to know what he wants you to look like? Well, the way Jesus lived his life, that's how he wants you to live your life. The way Jesus responded to difficulty, that's the way he wants you to. Uh, the way Jesus reached out to hurting people, that's the way he wants you to. The way he responded to criticism, that's how he wants you to, right? The way he, he, he loved the unlovely, the unwanted, that's the way he wants you to live, right? Just read the Gospels and God says, but hey, it's not on you. You surrender my rescue. You have the spirit inside to make that happen. Now, does the vision of connecting people to a life changing relationship with Jesus, does, does the vision of rescue and restoration, does that excite you? Does it motivate you? I, I mean, knowing that, that there's knowing that you can play a part in someone being rescued from their sin. And, and having a forever with God that you played a part in redirecting someone's eternity, does that excite you? I mean, can you, can you think of anything more powerful or more beautiful? I, I've got to tell you, I love seeing people rescued. I love it. That's why I love watching those scenes in Harvey, right? Because there's because it's just an image of, of what's happening when, when the gospel comes in and pulls people out of those circumstances. I, I love seeing people being rescued through their faith in God and repentance of their sins and being 